If you're enjoying Send Me to Sleep, make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. Also, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All of this really helps the show reach new listeners. And you never know, your review may convince someone to listen and lead them to a good night's rest, which I hope you all agree is worth sharing. Thanks so much for your listenership and support. Good evening. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the world's sleepiest podcast. I'm your host, Andrew. I'm here to help calm your mind and send you into a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading Book 4, Chapters 1 and 2 of The Black Arrow by Robert Louis Stevenson. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Book 4 The Disguise Chapter 1 The Den The place where Dick had struck the line of a high road was not far from Hollywood, and within nine or ten miles of shore beyond the till, and here, after making sure that they were pursued no longer, the two bodies separated. Lord Foxham's followers departed, carrying their wounded master towards the comfort and security of the great abbey, and Dick, as he saw them wind away and disappear in the thick curtain of falling snow, was left alone with near upon a dozen outlaws, the last remainder of his troop of volunteers. Some were wounded, One and all were furious at their ill success and long exposure, and though they were now too cold and hungry to do more, they grumbled and cast sullen looks upon their leaders. Dick emptied his purse among them, leaving himself nothing, thanked them for the courage they had displayed, though he could have found it more readily in his heart to rate them for poltroonery and have thus somewhat softened the effect of his prolonged misfortune, dispatched them to find their way, either severally or in pairs, to Shoreby and the goat and bagpipes. For his own part... Influenced by what he had seen on board of the Good Hope, he chose Lawless to be his companion on the walk. The snow was falling, without pause or variation, in one even, blinding cloud. The wind had been strangled and now blew no longer, and the whole world was blotted out and sheeted down below that silent indignation. 
there was great danger of wandering by the way and perishing in the drifts, and Lawless, keeping half a step in front of his companion and holding his head forward like a hunting dog upon the scent, inquired his way of every tree and studied out their path as though he were conning a ship among dangers. About a mile into the forest, they came to a place where several ways met, under a grove of lofty and contorted oaks. Even in the narrow horizon of the falling snow, it was a spot that could not fail to be recognized, and Lawless evidently recognized it with particular delight. Now, Master Richard, said he, and ye are not too proud to be the guest of a man who is neither a gentleman by birth, nor so much as good Christian, I can offer you a cup of wine and a good fire to melt the marrow in your frozen bones. Lead on, Will, answered Dick, a cup of wine and a good fire. Nay, I would go a far way round to see them. Lawless turned aside under the bare branches of the grove, and, walking resolutely forward for some time, came to a steepish hollow or den that had now drifted a quarter full of snow. On the verge, a great beech tree hung, precariously rooted, and here the old outlaw, pulling aside some bushy underwood, boldly disappeared into the earth. The beech had, in some violent gale, been half uprooted and had torn up a considerable stretch of turf, and it was under this that old Lawless had dug out his forest hiding place. The roots served him for rafters, the turf was his thatch. For a wall and floor, he had his mother earth. Rude as it was, the hearth in one corner, blackened by fire, and the presence in another of a large oaken chest, well fortified with iron, showed it at one glance to be the den of a man, and not the burrow of a digging beast. Though the snow had drifted at the mouth and sifted upon the floor of this earth cavern, yet was the air much warmer than without, and when Lawless had struck a spark and the dry furze bushes had begun to blaze and crackle on the hearth, the place assumed, even to the eye, an air of comfort and of home. With a sigh of great contentment, Lawless spread his broad hands before the fire and seemed to breathe the smoke. Here then, he said, is this old Lawless's rabbit hole. Pray heaven there come no terrier. Far I have rolled hither and thither, 
and here and about, since that I was fourteen years of mine age, and first ran away from mine abbey, with the sacrist's gold chain and a mass book that I sold for four marks. I have been in England and France and Burgundy, and in Spain too, on a pilgrimage for my soul, my poor soul, and upon the sea, which is no man's country. But here is my place, Master Shelton. This is my native land, this burrow in the earth. Come rain or wind, and whether it's April, and the birds all sing, and the blossoms fall about my bed, or whether it's winter, and I sit alone with my good gossip, the fire, and robin redbreast twitters in the woods. Here is my church and my market, my wife and my child. It's here I come back to, and it's here, so please the saints, that I would like to die. Tis a warm corner, to be sure, replied Dick, and a pleasant and a well hid. It had need to be, returned Lawless, for an they found it, Master Shelton, it would break my heart. But here, he added, burrowing with his stout fingers in the sandy floor, here is my wine cellar, and ye shall have a flask of excellent strong stingo. Sure enough, after but a little digging, he produced a big lathering bottle of about a gallon, nearly three parts full of a very heady and sweet wine, and when they had drunk to each other's camaraderie, and the fire had been replenished and blazed up again, the pair lay at full length, thawing and steaming, and divinely warm. Master Shelton, observed the outlaw, ye have had two mischances this last while, and ye are like to lose the maid. Do I take it aright? Aright, returned Dick, nodding his head. Well now, continued Lawless, here an old fool that hath been nigh hand everything, and seen nigh hand all. Ye go too much on other people's errands, Master Dick. Ye go on Ellis's, but he desireth rather the death of Sir Daniel. Ye go on Lord Foxham's, well, the saints preserve him. Doubtless he meaneth well, but go ye upon your own, good Dick. Come right to the maid's side. Court her, lest that she forget you. Be ye ready, and when the chance shall come, off with her at saddle bow. Aye, but lawless, beyond doubt 
She is now in Sir Daniel's own mansion, answered Dick. Thither then, go we, replied the outlaw. Dick stared at him. Nay, I mean it, nodded Lawless. And if ye are of so little faith and stumble at a word, see here. And the outlaw, taking a key from around his neck, opened the oak chest, and dipping and groping deep amongst its contents, produced first a friar's robe, and next a girdle of rope, and then a huge rosary of wood, heavy enough to be counted as a weapon. Here, he said, it is for you, on with them. And then, when Dick had clothed himself in this clerical disguise, Lawless produced some colours and a pencil, and proceeded, with the greatest cunning, to disguise his face. The eyebrows he thickened and produced to the moustache, which was yet hardly visible. He rendered a little service, while, by a few lines around the eyes, he changed the expression and increased the apparent age of this young monk. Now, he resumed, when I have done the like, we shall make a bonny a pair of fries as the eye could wish. Boldly to Sir Daniel's we shall go, and there be hospitably welcome for the love of Mother Church. And how, dear Lawless, cried the lad, shall I repay you? Tut, brother, replied the outlaw, I do naught but for my pleasure. Mind not for me, I am one by the mass that mindeth for himself. When that I lack, I have a long tongue and a voice like the monastery bell. I do ask, my son, and where asking faileth, I do most usually take. The old rogue made a humorous grimace, and although Dick was displeased to lie under so great favours to so equivocal a personage, he was yet unable to restrain his mirth. With that, Lawless returned to the big chest, and was soon similarly disguised. But, below his gown, Dick wondered to observe him conceal a sheaf of black arrows. Wherefore do ye that? asked the lad. Wherefore arrows, when ye take no bow? Nay, replied Lawless lightly. Tis like there will be heads broke, not to say backs, ere you and I win sound from where we're going to, and if any fall, I would our fellowship should come by the credit taunt. A black arrow, Master Dick, is the seal of our abbey. It showeth you who writ the bill. 
and ye prepare so carefully, said Dick. I have here some papers that, for mine own sake, and the interest of those that trusted me, were better left behind than found upon my body. Where shall I conceal them, Will? Nay, replied Lawless, I will go forth into the wood and whistle me three verses of a song. Meanwhile, do you bury them where ye please and smooth the sand upon the place. Never, cried Richard, I trust you, man. I were base indeed if I not trusted you. Brother, ya but a child, replied the outlaw, pausing and turning his face upon Dick from the threshold of the den. I am a kind old Christian, and no traitor to men's blood, and no sparer of mine own in a friend's jeopardy. But, fool child, I am a thief by trade and birth and habit. If my bottle were empty and my mouth dry, I would rob you, dear child, as sure as I love, honour, and admire your parts and person. Can it be clearer spoken? No. And he stumped forward through the bushes with a snap of his big fingers. Dick, thus left alone, after a wandering thought upon the inconsistencies of his champion's character, hastily produced, reviewed, and buried his papers. One only he reserved to carry along with him, since it in no wise compromised his friends, and yet might serve him, in a pinch, against Sir Daniel. That was the knight's own letter to Lord Wensleydale, sent by Throgmorton on the morrow of the defeat of Risingham, and found next day by Dick upon the body of the messenger. Then, treading down the embers of the fire, Dick left the den and rejoined the outlaw, who stood awaiting him under the leafless oaks, and was already beginning to be powdered by the falling snow. Each looked upon the other, and each laughed. So thorough and so droll was the disguise. Yet I would it were but summer and a clear day, grumbled the outlaw, that I might see myself in the mirror of a pool, There be many of Sir Daniel's men that know me, and if we feel to be recognized, there might be two words for you, brother. But as for me, in a paternoster while, I should be kicking in a rope's end. Thus they set forth together along the road to Shoreby, which, in this part of its course, kept near along the margin of the forest, coming forth from time to time in the open country, 
and passing besides poor folks' houses and small farms. Presently, at sight of one of these, Lawless pulled up. Brother Martin, he said, in a voice capitally disguised and suited to his monkish robe. Let us enter and seek alms from these poor sinners. I, he added, in his own voice, tis as I feared, I have somewhat lost the wine of it, and by your leave, good master Shelton, ye must suffer me to practice in these country places, before that I risk my fat neck by entering Sir Daniel's. But look ye a little what an excellent thing it is to be a jack of all trades. And I had not been a shipman, ye had infallibly gone down in the good hope. And I had not been a thief, I could not have painted me your face. And but that I had been a grey friar, and sung loud in the choir, and ate hearty at the board. I could not have carried this disguise, but the very dogs would have spied us out and barked at us for shams. He was by this time close to the window of the farm, and he rose on his tiptoes and peeped in. Nay, he cried, better and better, we shall here try our false faces with a vengeance and have a merry jest on Brother Capper to boot. And so saying, he opened the door and led the way into the house. Three of their own company sat at the table, greedily eating. Their daggers stuck beside them in the board, and the black and menacing looks which they continued to shower upon the people of the house proved that they owed their entertainment rather to force than favour. On the two monks, who now, with a sort of humble dignity, entered the kitchen of the farm, they seemed to turn with a particular resentment, and one, it was John Capper in person, who seemed to play the leading part instantly and rudely ordered them away. We want no beggars here, he cried. But another, although he was as far from recognizing Dick and Lawless, inclined to more moderate counsels. Not so, he cried. We be strong men, and take, these be weak, and crave but in the latter end, these shall be uppermost and we below. Mind him not, my father, but come, drink of my cup, and give me a benediction. Ye are men of the light mind, carnal and accursed, said the monk. Now, May the saints forbid that ever I should drink with such companions. But here, for the pity I bear to sinners, I here do leave you a blessed relic, the which, 
for your soul's interest, I bid you kiss and cherish. So far Lawless thundered upon them like a preaching friar, but with these words he drew from under his robe a black arrow, tossed it on the board in front of the three startled outlaws, turned in the same instant, and, taking Dick along with him, was out of the room and out of sight among the falling snow before they had time to utter a word or move a finger. So, he said, we have proved our false faces, Master Shelton. I will now adventure my poor carcass where ye please. Good, returned Richard. It irks me to be doing. Set we on for Shoreby. Chapter 2 In Mine Enemy's House Sir Daniel's residence in Shoreby was a tall, commodious, plastered mansion, framed in a caravan oak and covered by a low-pitched roof of thatch. To the back there stretched a garden, full of fruit trees, alleys, and thick arbours, and overlooked from the far end by the tower of the Abbey Church. The house might contain, upon a pinch, the retune of a greater person than Sir Daniel, but even now it was filled with hubbub. The court rang with arms and horseshoe iron. The kitchens roared with cookery like a bee's hive. Minstrels and the players of instruments and the cries of tumblers sounded from the hall. Sir Daniel, in his profusion, in the gaiety and gallantry of his establishment, revealed with Lord Shoreby and eclipsed Lord Risingham. All guests were made welcome, minstrels, tumblers, players of chess, the sellers of relics, medicines, perfumes and enchantments, and along with these, every sort of priest, friar or pilgrim were made welcome to the lower table and slept together in the ample lofts or on the bare boards of the long dining hall. On the afternoon following the wreck of the Good Hope, the buttery kitchens, the stables, the covered cart shed that surrounded two sides of the court, were all crowded by idle people partly belonging to Sir Daniel's establishment, and attired in his livery of murray and blue, partly nondescript strangers attracted to the town by greed, and received by the night through policy, and because it was the fashion of the time. The snow, which still fell without interruption, the extreme chill of the air, and the approach of night combined to keep them under shelter. Wine, 
ale, and money were all plentiful. Many sprawled gambling in the store of the barn. Many were still drunken from the noontide meal. To the eye of a modern, it would have looked like the sack of a city. To the eye of a contemporary, it was like any other rich and noble household at a festive season. Two monks, a young and an old, had arrived late and were now warming themselves at a bonfire in the corner of the shed. A mixed crowd surrounded them, jugglers, mountbanks and soldiers, and with these the elder of the two had soon engaged in so brisk a conversation and exchanged so many loud guffaws and country witticisms that the group momentarily increased in number. The younger companion, in whom the reader has already recognized Dick Shelton, sat from the first somewhat backward and gradually drew himself away. He listened, indeed, closely, but he opened not his mouth, and by the brave expression of his countenance, he made but little account of his companion's pleasantries. At last, his eye, which travelled continually to and fro, and kept a guard upon all the entrances of the house, lit upon a little procession entering by the main gate and crossing the court in an oblique direction. Two ladies, muffled in thick furs, led the way and were followed by a pair of waiting women and four stout men-at-arms. The next moment they had disappeared within the house and Dick, slipping through the crowd of loiterers in the shed, was already giving hot pursuit. The taller of these twain was Lady Brackley, he thought, and where Lady Brackley is, Joan will not be far. At the door of the house, the four men-at-arms had ceased to follow and the ladies were now mounting the stairway of polished oak, under no better escort than that of the two waiting women. Dick followed close behind. It was already the dusk of the day, and in the house the darkness of the night had almost come. On the stair of the landings, torches flared in iron holders, down the long, tapestried corridors, a lamp burned by every door. And where the door stood open, Dick could look in upon arras-covered walls and rush-bescattered floors, glowing in the light of the wood fires. Two floors were passed, and at every landing, the younger and shorter of the two ladies that looked back keenly at the monk, he, keeping his eyes lowered and affecting the demure manners that suited his disguise, had but seen her once, 
and was unaware that he had attracted her attention. And now, on the third floor, the party separated, the younger lady continuing to ascend alone, the other, followed by waiting maids, descending the corridors to the right. Dick mounted with a swift foot, and holding to the corner, thrust forth his head and followed the three women with his eyes. Without turning or looking behind them, they continued to descend the corridor. It is right well, thought Dick. Let me but know my lady Brackley's chamber, and it will go hard, and it will go hard, and I find not Dame Hatch upon an errand. And just then, a hand was laid upon his shoulder, and... With a bound and a choked cry, he turned to grapple his assailant. He was somewhat abashed to find, in the person whom he had so roughly seized, the short young lady in the furs. She, on her part, was shocked and terrified beyond expression, and hung trembling in his grasp. Madam, said Dick, releasing her. I cry you a thousand pardons, but I have no eyes behind, and, by the mass, I could not tell ye were a maid. The girl continued to look at him, but, by this time, terror began to be succeeded by surprise, and surprise by suspicion. Dick, who could read these changes on her face, became alarmed for his own safety in that hostile house. Fair maid, he said, affecting easiness, suffer me to kiss your hand in token ye forgive my roughness, and I will even go. Ye are a strange monk, young sir returned the young lady, looking him both boldly and shrewdly in the face. And now that my first astonishment hath somewhat passed away, I can spy the layman in each word you utter. What do ye hear? Why are ye thus garrulously tricked out? Come ye in peace or war? And why spy ye after Lady Brackley like a thief? Madam, quoth Dick, Of one thing I pray you to be very sure, I am no thief, And even if I come here in war, As in some degree I do, I make no war upon fair maidens, And I hereby entreat them to copy me so far and to leave me be. For indeed, fair mistress, cry out, if such be your pleasure, cry but once, and say what ye have seen, and the poor gentleman before you is merely a dead man. I cannot think he would be cruel, added Dick, and taking the girl's hand gently in both of his, 
he looked at her with courtesy and admiration. Are ye, then, a spy, a Yorkist? asked the maid. Madam, he replied, I am indeed a Yorkist, and, in some sort, a spy. But that which bringeth me into this house, the same which will win for me the pity and interest of your kind heart, is neither of York nor of Lancaster. I will wholly put my life in your discretion. I am a lover, and my name. But here the young lady clapped her hand suddenly upon Dick's mouth, looked hastily up and down, and east and west, and, seeing the coast clear, began to drag the young man, with great strength and vehemence, upstairs. Hush, she said, and come, shalt talk hereafter. Somewhat bewildered, Dick suffered himself to be pulled upstairs, bustled along a corridor, and thrust suddenly into a chamber, lit, like so many of the others, by a blazing log upon the heath. Now, said the young lady, forcing him down upon a stool, sit ye there and attend my sovereign good pleasure. I have life and death over you, and I will not scruple to abuse my power. Look to yourself. Yav cruelly mauled my arm. He knew not I was a maid, quoth he. Had he known I was a maid, he had taken his belt to me for suit. And with these words, she whipped out of the room and left Dick gaping with wonder and not very sure if he were dreaming or awake. Take my belt to her, he repeated. Take my belt to her. And the recollection of that evening in the forest followed back upon his mind. And he once more saw Matcham's wincing body and beseeching eyes. And then he was recalled to the dangers of the present. In the next room he heard a stir, as of person moving, then followed a sigh, which sounded strangely near and then the rustle of skirts and a tap of feet once more began. As he stood heartening, he saw the arras wave along the wall. There was the sound of a door being opened, the hangings divided, and, lamp in hand, Joanna Sedley entered the apartment. She was attired in costly stuffs, of deep and warm colours, such as befit the winter and the snow. Upon her head, her hair had been gathered together and became her as a crown, and she, who had seemed so little and so awkward in the attire of Matcham, was now tall like a young willow 
and swam across the floor as though she scorned the drudgery of walking. Without a start, without a tremor, she raised her lamp and looked at the young monk. What make ye here, good brother? she inquired. Ye are doubtless ill-directed. Whom do ye require? And she set her lamp upon the bracket. Joanna, said Dick, and then his voice failed him. Joanna, he began again. Ye said ye love me, and the more fool I, but I believed it. Dick, she cried, Dick. And then, to wonder of the lad, this beautiful and tall young lady made but one step of it and threw her arms about his neck and gave him a hundred kisses all in one. Oh, the fool fellow, she cried. Oh, dear Dick. Oh, if ye could see yourself. Alack, she added, pausing. I have spoilt you, Dick. I have not some of the paint off, but that can be mended. What cannot be mended, Dick, or I much fear it cannot, is my marriage with Lord Shoreby. It is decided, then, asked the lad. Tomorrow before noon, Dick, in the Abbey Church. John Matcham and Joanna Sedley both shall come to a right miserable end. There is no help in tears, or I could weep mine eyes out. I have not spared myself to pray, but heaven frowns on my petition. And dear Dick, good Dick, but that ye can get me forth of this house before the morning, we must even kiss and say goodbye. Nay, said Dick, not I, I will never say that word. Tis like despair, but while there's life, Joanna, there is hope. Yet will I hope, I by the mass and triumph. Look ye now, when ye were but a name to me, did I not follow, did I not rouse good men? Did I not stake my life upon the quarrel? And now that I have seen you for what ye are, the fairest maid and stateliest of England, think ye I would turn? If the deep sea were there, I would straight through it. If the way were full of lions, I would scatter them like mice. I, she said, drilly, yet make a great to-do about sky-blue robes. Nay, Joan, protested Dick, tis not alone the robe, but lass, ye were disguised. Here am I disguised, and, to the proof, I do not cut a figure of fun, a right fool's figure. Aye, Dick, and that ye do, she answered, smiling. Well then, 
he returned triumphant. So was it with you, poor Matcham, in the forest. In sooth ye were a wench to laugh at, but now... So they ran on, holding each other by the hands, exchanging smiles and lovely looks, and melting minutes into seconds. And so they might have continued all night long. But presently there was a noise behind them, and they were aware of a short young lady with her finger on her lips. Saints, she cried, but what a noise ye keep. Can ye not speak in compass? And now, Joanna, my fair maid of the woods, what will ye give your gossip of bringing you your sweetheart? Joanna ran to her by way of answer and embraced her fiercely. And you, sir, added the young lady, what do ye give me? Madam, said Dick, I would fain offer to pay you in the same money. Come then, said the lady, it is permitted you. But Dick, blushing like a peony, only kissed her hand. What ails ye at my face, fair sir? she inquired, curtsying to the very ground. And then, when Dick had at length and most tepidly embraced her, Joanna, she added, your sweetheart is very backwards under your eyes, but I warrant you, when first we met, he was more ready. I am all black and blue, wench, trust me never, if I be not black and blue. And now, she continued, have ye said your sayings, for I must speedily dismiss the paladin. But at this, they both cried out that they had said nothing, that the night was still very young, and that they would not be separated so early. And supper, asked the young lady, must we not go down to supper? Nay, to be sure, cried Joan, I had forgotten. Hide me then, said Dick, put me behind the arras, shut me in a chest, or what ye will, so that I may be here on your return. Indeed, fair lady, he added, bear this in mind, that we are sore besetted, and may never look upon each other's face from this night forward till we die. At this, the young lady melted, and when, a little after, the bell summoned Sir Daniel's household to the board, Dick was planted very stiffly against the wall, at a place where a division in the tapestry permitted him to breathe the more freely and even to see into the room. He had not long in this position when he was somewhat strangely disturbed. The silence in that upper story of the house 
was only broken by the flickering of the flames and the hissing of a green log in the chimney. But presently, to Dick's strained hearing, there came the sound of someone walking with extreme precaution, and soon after the door opened, and a little black-faced dwarfish fellow in Lord Shoreby's colours pushed first his head and then his crooked body into the chamber. His mouth was open, as though to hear the better, and his eyes, which were very bright, flittered restlessly and swiftly to and fro. He went round and round the room, striking here and there upon the hangings, but Dick, by a miracle, escaped his notice. Then he looked below the furniture and examined the lamp, and, at last, with an air of cruel disappointment, was preparing to go away as silently as he had come, when down he dropped upon his knees, picked up something from among the rushes on the floor, examined it, and, with every signal of delight, concealed it in the wallet of his belt. Dick's heart sank, for the object in question was a tassel from his own girdle, and it was plain to him that this dwarfish spy, who took a malign delight in his employment, would lose no time in bearing it to his master, the Baron. He was half tempted to throw aside the arras, fall upon the scoundrel, and, at a risk of his life, remove the tell-tale token. And while he was still hesitating, a new cause of concern was added. A voice, hoarse and broken by drink, began to be audible from the stair, and presently after, uneven, wandering, and heavy footsteps sounded without along the passage. What make ye here, my merry men, among the greenwood shores, sang the voice. What make ye here, hey, sots, what make ye here, it added, with a rattle of drunken laughter, and then, once more breaking into song. If ye should drink the clary wine, fat friar John, ye friend of mine, if I should eat, and ye should drink, who shall sing the merry, d'ye think? Lawless, alas, rolling drunk, was wandering the house, seeking for a corner wherein to slumber off the effect of his potations. Dick inwardly raged. The spy, at first, terrified, had grown reassured as he found he had a deal with an intoxicated man, and now, with a movement of cat-like rapidity, slipped from the chamber and was gone from Richard's eyes. What was to be done? If he lost touch of Lawless for the night, he was left impotent, 
whether to plan or carry forth Joanna's rescue. If, on the other hand, he dared to address the drunken outlaw, the spy might slight be lingering within sight, and the most fatal consequences ensue. It was, nevertheless, upon this last hazard that Dick decided. Slipping from behind the tapestry, he stood ready in the doorway of the chamber, with a warning hand upraised. Lawless, flushed crimson, with his eyes injected, vacillating on his feet, drew still unsteadily nearer. At last, he hazily caught sight of his commander, and in despite of Dick's imperious signals, hailed him instantly and loudly by his name. Dick leaped upon and shook the drunkard furiously. Beast, he hissed. Beast and no man. It is worse than treachery to be so witless. We may all be sent for thy sotting. But Lawless only laughed and staggered and tried to clap young Shelton on the back. And just then, Dick's quick ear caught a rapid brushing in the arras. He leaped towards the sound, and the next moment, a piece of wall hanging had been torn down, and Dick and the spy were sprawling together in the folds. Over and over they rolled, grappling for each other's throat, and still baffled by the arras, and still silent in their deadly fury. But Dick was by much the stronger, and soon the spy lay prostrate under his knee, and, with a single stroke of the long poniard, ceased to breathe. 